Hello, and welcome to Red Rock Relationships, a podcast about communication. Let's unpack the relationships that we encounter in our daily lives and learn about what makes them tick. And now your host for Red Rock Relationships, Dr. James B. Stein. All right, we're back again. And before we start, I just want to say thank you to everybody who has recently subscribed and tuned into the show. We've experienced a nice little bump in audience growth, which is very exciting for me and my ego. But of course, we're not here to talk about me. We're talk, uh, we're here to talk about really fun, dark side relationship stuff. We are continuing that saga. Last week, we talked about toxic relationships. Uh, the week before, we talked about sort of, well, we were supposed to be talking about the friend zone and it kind of turned into a discussion on some of the more toxic elements that society presents us with. But nevertheless, we are continuing to talk about dark side issues. Specifically, we're gonna talk about those things that we do in our relationships that hurt our partner the very, very most. And in order to do that, I am joined by Dr. Samantha Shabib. It's so great to have you here. Thank you, James. Thanks for having me. I'm a different type of Arizona State alum, but still part of the ASU family. Still an ASU product as far as I see it. Um, You're undergraduate there. And then um, Northern Illinois? I went to Illinois State for my master's and then Michigan State for my PhD. So for those who don't know, and I know everybody cares about this drama, Michigan State and Arizona State are dead heat rivals in the field of interpersonal communication. So we're supposed to not get along very well, but I don't know, that never seemed to stop us from hanging out at conferences. (laughs) No, I mean, I got the best of both worlds, so Mm. I feel lucky and honored. Yeah, and now, actually, you're here in state, are you not? Yeah, I'm in Utah State University, so up in northern Utah in Logan, about an hour, 15 minutes, depending on how fast you drive, um, (laughs) north of Salt Lake City. Mm Well, that's very, very cool. And, um, you know, before we get started today, we're going to be talking about relational transgressions. And so we're going to have to define what that is. But before we do that, I'm hoping that you can finish kind of just giving up your bio. We know where you came from and where you're at now. But can you talk a little bit about what got you into the study of interpersonal communication and and how your career has progressed up until this point? Yeah, so... Essentially, my overall goal in research is how can we change people's destructive or dysfunctional communication once it's become so habitualized in a relationship to more functional and productive ways. Um, One of the reasons I study this is because um, I look at relationships with a dark side perspective. A lot of it stems from my childhood, just like a lot of other researchers would say. Um, But I'd see parents engage in very dysfunctional conflict tactics and would think to myself, we all know this is bad, but what can we do to communicate it in a different way? Mm. Um, So it's more of that pragmatic element that I'm really like interested in. But I find the need to study these dark phenomenons essentially a lot like conflict because it's inevitable and the consequences it experiences on our personal health and our relational health can be detrimental. And so the purpose of my research is really to not merely reveal, you know, dark phenomenons, but rather embrace and promote the need to integrate both dark and bright aspects um, of a relationship in order to reveal a more nuanced understanding of human relating, like the dark side of the moon, you know, the dark side of the relationships can co-occur at the same time as the light. Very nice. And uh, two things I'll say about that. Thing number one, Dark Phenomenon is a great band name. I think someone should take that. Uh, And and then the second thing that I'll say um, uh, is that 
much like you, I, I study, um, you know, some of the more dark side elements of interpersonal communication. And it's really good to hear about it in a, in a more, um, like you said, a more pragmatic way in a more, a more practical way. I'm wondering if yeah. we can, if we can unpack that just a little bit more, because we've talked about that word on this show before dark side. And Oh, by the way, if you're looking for a more broad overview of conflict, check out season one, I think episode seven, we had soon to be Dr. Rob Matheny on here to talk about intractable conflicts. So if you want that summary, watch that episode. Uh, but for now, we're going to talk a little bit more about that dark side stuff. So I'm wondering, can we, can we kind of unpack that term? What does it mean to study dark side? Okay, now this is a really important question because I get this a lot. Um, when I was doing my master's, my master's advisor is Dr. William Kupak. Um, Dr. William Kupak and Brian Spitzberg are the founders of the dark side of interpersonal relationships. And the dark side is not just about dark things that happen in your relationship. It's trying to find where the bright part also comes to play. So how can something seemingly so dark like a transgression also have something so positive attached to it? Or how can conflict be, you know, a positive experience that we have with our romantic partners? So it's not just about dark things. It's integrating the dark with the light mm -hmm. and vice versa. I'm looking into some stuff right now with support and seeing how like too much support can have these dark relational mm -hmm. aspects, which you would normally just think about in a positive way. Right. Very good. And also, uh, Dr. Coulter Ray talked about just that very concept yeah. earlier this season. Um, and for the record, if uh, if you're listening to this and you take comm classes and you've taken my conflict class, you are very well familiar with Bill Kupak and Brian Spitzberg because they wrote your book. So with that said, now that we have a good understanding of what we mean by that, let's talk about relational transgressions. It's a very academic textbook term. Can we talk about what a transgression is and why it's meaningful in relationships? Yeah. So a relational transgression in the most simplistic way, um, you know, Sandra Metz in the early 1990s defined this as violations of expectations that are either like implicit or explicit relational rules. So classic examples, you know, sexual infidelity, you know, wanting to date another person while you're already in a relationship, deceiving others about something. Um, so they're the violations of these rules that we explicitly or implicitly have in our romantic relationships. Mm. That's a great definition. And if I could just add a caveat to it, one of the big things that I don't know if we'll have time to get to because, and you're going to see, this is something we could talk about forever, intentionality. Um, when we think about a transgression, it's often very hurtful because we feel like our partner meant to hurt us. Whereas for example, uh, you know, if our partner, I don't know, forgot our birthday, like that stinks and that's hurtful, but we know they didn't mean to. Like when our partners sleep, like if we're in a relationship and one of us sleeps with another person, like that is a choice that the other person made and they had time to think about it and they were doing the act and that is a particularly hurtful transgression um, in big part because of the intentionality behind it. Um, so yeah. yeah. I mean, I think something too, it's that paradox of close relationships and hurtful messages, like Dr. Laura Guerrero would say, mm -hmm. you know, with those who we have the closest relationships with have ways to hurt us in ways that others can't. And so that feeling of being devalued really results when you are transgressed upon. Mm. 
Yeah, devaluing, that's huge. I mean, that's super big in the literature, especially uh, in the recent transgression literature. And maybe we'll have some time to talk about that. But for our listeners at home, um, you can consider it as, yeah, a very intentional act that's exceptionally hurtful. So we've all experienced these. Can we talk a little bit about some of the types of transgressions? So let's start with maybe some of the more common transgressions. What do we typically see uh, in terms of like, if, if two people are in a relationship and somebody commits a transgression, um, what are we most likely to be talking about? Most likely we're talking about sexual infidelity. Um, I think the current research would say that, you know, that's a transgression of a pretty explicit relational rule in a relationship, right? That you're going to remain committed and exclusive and monogamous with one another. So when you step out of those bounds and you, you know, engage in sexual intercourse or any type of sexual activity with another person, you know, that's violating that. And that communicates a lot to the person who's transgressed upon if they find find out. <laughs> okay. So infidelity is the big one. Are there any others that we could kind of like poke our head out and look at or, or is it, re is it really just focusing a lot on that? No, I mean, deception is a huge one. And also, I mean, you've got to think about the variety of different ways we deceive and lie. Mm. So intentionality comes about there too. Also big lies come about there too. And I would say that conflict is probably one of the biggest relational transgressions. Because it's a violation of some implicit or explicit relational rule that leads to having conflict about whatever the issue might be. Yeah. And I think that there's also sort of a bit of a stigma there. Like you feel like you're not supposed to get into conflict with your partner all that often. And I'm sure when you and I teach that sort of thing, we do our best to stamp that that false flag out. But a lot of people still think that a lot of people feel like if they're fighting in their relationships, if they're arguing in their relationships, that it is bad. Um, and in reality, it, it, it's more about you know, the, the transgression at hand, the issue, the source, um, and, uh, well, you know, the tactics yeah. used to resolve it. Yeah. Not only that, we know based off research, it's not the mere frequency in which you argue that predicts the demise of your relationship. It is actually how you argue that predicts the demise. Mm. And there's so many positive things that come out of conflict. If we didn't have conflict, how would we be able to stop problematic behavior or tell somebody something that we don't like? It allows for growth. It allows for change, problem diagnosis. Also, being in conflict means you're interdependent. It means you care about somebody. Why would you engage in conflict with somebody just at the grocery store unless you're trying to get that last stack of toilet paper. Well, I was about um, to say, a lot of people do, the mass conflict is big at the grocery store these days, at least according to TikTok. <laughs> right, but yeah, I really try to stop that stereotype around conflict mm -hmm. because it's inevitable. We are going to have conflict and that's okay, but it's all about how you communicate during conflict, conflict that's really important for the success of your relationship. Yeah, so last season when we talked with um, Rob Maffini, we discussed kind of like the three basic levels of conflict. For those who forget, level one is sort of um, super behavior focused. Uh, you know, I wish you would take out the trash more. Number two is relationship focused. Um, you know, I, you know, I, I don't know. I wish you'd be more available to me. And, and, and number three is personality focused. Why are you such a slob? Right. We want to avoid level three, right? Because that's when it gets yeah. personal. So, and I think you know where I'm going with this. Can you tell me a little bit why these episodes of conflict are so harmful or so detrimental to the relationship in question? And uh, what are the, uh, I guess we'll call them the, the, the red flags, although I think you'll, you'll probably relabel them in a moment here. What are these red flags that really, really threaten our relationships? 
Okay. So when we experience conflict, um, you know, psychologists believe that we go through one of two different types of an emotional system. You've either got that hot system, which is located in the amygdala part of your brain, or the cool system, which is located in the prefrontal cortex. And that hot system triggers during conflict, right? We feel this threat or you know, this need, right, to resolve this issue or something's endangering us. And when this happens, we communicate more in destructive ways. So one of the first thing we do is we need to cool our emotions down so that we can rationally talk about conflict, but typically doesn't happen because it's in the heat of the moment. Mm -hmm. So there are four things to look out for essentially in a relationship during conflict. And these are notably known as John Dotman's Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. Um, Gottman says that couples who divorce are likely to exhibit a pattern of conflict that includes the following four types, criticism, defensiveness, contempt, and stonewalling. And actually, most interestingly, within the first three minutes of interaction, the presence of these forms of negative and destructive communication can predict divorce with an accuracy rate of over 90%. Mm. Wow. Okay. So uh, let's take just a little bit of time to break those down. The first one's criticism and specifically it's uh, criticism over complaint. So uh, yes. Dr. Gottman's super clear, like you can complain about your relationship and you can complain about your relationship to your partner. But when you start criticizing them, that's when we escalate to that, that level three conflict where we are attacking their personality. So uh, exactly. cr criticism is a, is a real nasty one. Can you, um, yeah. can you break down defensiveness for me a little bit? Yeah. So defensiveness is usually a response to criticism, right? People become defensive because they feel a need to protect themselves or to ward off like personal attacks. Um, defensiveness involves defending oneself by communicating, it's not me, it's you. And one of the most studied defensive behaviors is mind reading. And <laughs> mind reading occurs when people assume that they know their partner's feelings, um, their motives, or or their behaviors or what they're going to say or do in a situation. And they often include words such as you always and you never. These are the worst things to do. Never mind read your partner. And the antidote to defensiveness is to fight the impulse, right? To defend yourself and accept at least some partial responsibility for the issue at hand. Mm. I think that's well said, and I think compromise plays a big role in that, sort of like a like an olive branch. I'll accept some responsibility, um, and, and hopefully you'll reciprocate, and you'll also accept some responsibility. I think you bring up a really good point in talking about the ways in which we often see the criticism and the defensiveness coupled together. They're kind of like a nasty little duo. You know what I think about? I think about, you know, Disney's Hercules? Yes. I think about <laughs> pain and panic. Like, that, to me, yes. is... is uh, defensiveness and criticism, like they are well, right there. Yeah. So, I mean, but criticisms are these personal attacks, mm -hmm. right? And we can't change our personal characteristics, right? That's why a complaint is behavioral focused and is much better because it's saying, can you do something to change your behavior? Mm -hmm. Typically, yes, we can do something to change our behavior, but we can't change the way we are as a person. And so that leads to defensiveness which then leads to my favorite, contempt. That's my favorite too, yeah. yeah. Tell me about contempt. <laughs> okay, so the third horseman um, is contempt. When we communicate in this state, we treat others with disrespect, 
we mark them with, you know, sarcasm, we ridicule, call them names, or, you know, use nonverbal behavior such as eye rolling or sneering. Contempt is fueled by long simmering negative thoughts about one's partner, and it arises in the form of attack on someone's sense of self. Inevitably, contempt is actually one of the most destructive and dangerous forms of communication that can occur, that can occur in a relationship. It communicates an air of superiority and is often the byproduct of longstanding issues mm. in your relationship. Mm. In other words, it's comments that belittle or demean the other person. Probably the thing that I find most interesting about contempt is that it actually erodes your partner's immune system. Wow. Let me reiterate that you being contemptuous to your partner, they are more likely to suffer from infectious diseases like colds or flus than couples who do not communicate in contempt. That is insane. Yeah, that is one communicative behavior that you can do to someone else that actually has this effect on their health in their long term, but doesn't necessarily have the effect on you, which and yeah, it's crazy. that is a lot. And I think it's also very important to note that contempt is one of the seven universal nonverbal expressions, meaning that you recognize it immediately when you see it, regardless of how old you are, where you're from, or what you did. Like, you know contempt when you see it. And if you need proof of that, there are plenty of pop culture examples. For example, my personal favorite, when people say that somebody has a punchable face, right? That's a term that people often use to somebody who is expressing contempt on their face. Um, and that, yeah. that's kind of the that's kind of the, the key giveaway. But I believe that the research shows that the last one is actually the most harmful to the relationship. And that last one is stonewalling, which is the, the ceasing of communication. So why is that one so bad? So stonewalling occurs when listeners like withdraw from the interaction, right? They shut down um, or simply like stop responding to their partner. So rather than confronting the issues with their partner, you know, people who stonewall make evasive statements such as like tuning them out or turning away acting busy or engaging in like obsessive or distracting types of behaviors. I think the reason why stonewalling is so bad is that it takes um, time from the negativity of the first three horsemen to become overwhelming, that stonewalling is actually seen as this understandable out to the relationship problems. Mm -hmm. But when you start to stonewall, it becomes such a bad habit and you engage very frequently in it. And as we know, habitual avoidance is not going to be successful for resolving anything in yeah. a relationship. <laughs> yeah. And I think you nailed it. When you see stonewalling, it almost is never alone. It's usually there with the other three horsemen as well. That one's kind of like the big signaling that this relationship might not be might not be going great. And so it's it's yeah. not that they, they don't occur in a chronological order, but I think you would be most likely to see criticism and defensiveness first, followed by contempt and then stonewalling. Yeah. And I also want to like emphasize too that, you know, there's a difference between stonewall and avoidance. Mm. Um, 
Though we know that avoidance is not always the best case scenario in conflict, sometimes it's very beneficial. I mean, imagine being in like an abusive relationship or an aggressive, you know, you're engaging in conflict with someone who's aggressive. Definitely, you know, avoid until they've calmed down. They're at a much more rational state of mind. So there is a difference between the two. And actually, the antidote to stonewalling is taking a little bit of a break. Um, it actually specifically 20 minutes of a break, letting your partner know, hey, we need to cool down for 20 minutes. Go watch a fit your favorite show, read a book, take a walk, whatever it is to get back to those cool emotions. So that hot emotion that's not making us think rationally isn't coming to play when we're talking about these problems. Yeah. I wish we had time to talk about action tendencies and emotions, but we don't because we've only got about five minutes left. So in that five yeah. minutes, I kind of want to talk about that, that light side, dark side thing that you were bringing up early on. Um, yes, transgressions and these four horsemen are extremely threatening to a relationship. But my question to you is, um, one, is there coming back from it? Can you repair a relationship in which contempt or stonewalling is present? And two, um, what are specific behaviors or things that we can do to help fix the relationship once a transgression has occurred? Okay. So... In terms of the communication behaviors for conflict, like contempt and stonewalling, it's really important to acknowledge that they're going on. A lot of times what we see, we believe, but we don't really actually remember that what we see is our perception of what's going on. And so we need to take a step back, right? And realize how much our communication actually affects us physiologically and affects the relational health. How you say something is often more important than what is being said. And so you can rephrase things in a way where you can get more reaction from your partner in changing a behavior or doing something differently if it's communicated in a way that's more constructive and calmer in demeanor. So yes, we can do it. It's just very hard when we have been in relationships for so long that this is just how we fight. Um, in terms of transgressions, coming back from transgressions, yes, they can happen. Um, and relationships can often even recover better than they were before the transgression. It takes, it takes a lot of work in relationships in general, and it definitely takes more work when an infidelity or transgression has taken place. However, that being said, the key is forgiveness. And forgiveness is not condoning the behavior by any means, but it's getting over the state of emotions that you've been in. Um, but it takes two to tango. So there's only so much you can just do. Yeah. And, and I'm, first of all, let me just say that I'm very glad you brought up forgiveness. And I don't think you know this, but the next episode that we're doing is on forgiveness with Dana Clover. Oh. Um, so yeah, so wonderful transition here. Um, I think that you make a couple of good points. One thing that I want to say is I just, uh, I just had our first meeting of, I'm teaching like an upper, upper division, uh, close relationships course, and it's, it's a B session. So we just had our first week and I just finished explaining to them how self-serving humans tend to be and how selfish we are and how we like to hoard our mental energy and how we don't want to put in the work and how we wish and we want things to be easy. But what you're telling me is that when your relationship is under siege, either due to circumstance or because of, you know, communicative actions that you've been engaging in, uh, the thing that we need to do is we need to put the work in and, you know, yes. in this show, we've talked about a variety of ways in which that work occurs, but I think it's, it bears repeating what, what you just said. 
you really need to work and you need to work with not only your own interests in mind, but the interests of the other person in, in mind as well. And that's the hard part. Am I right? Yeah, no, it is really hard because sometimes the problem is, is not knowing exactly what you want or what needs to be done to change because it can seem so minuscule, like help me do the dishes, right? I mean, the classic scene from the breakup movie with Jennifer Aniston and Vince Vaughn. I want you, you know, to they... want to do the dishes. Yeah. Yeah. I want you to want to do the dishes. Who wants to do the dishes? You know, and it spirals so fast, but it shows the, you know, negative reciprocity. Mm -hmm. When I start to scream, someone's going to scream back and it just going to escalate from there. And so we really just need to be more mindful about how we go about expressing our, you know, complaints about something and, you know, be mindful that, our partners are seeing things in different ways too. And so we need to keep that in mind and not bringing up old arguments just for the sake of it in a new one or gunny sacking and storing up all of your old grievances and then lashing out all at once. We need to address them head on and kind of nip them in the butt, so to say, before they become so dangerous, they're going to be lethal to our relationship. Yeah. And unfortunately, if you reach that point, it is important to note that, you know, you can get over those issues. But again, it takes a lot of work. It's going to take some compromise. And as we know, in relationships, we'd rather be collaborative than compromising. But there is a time and a place to do that. And after a transgression might be one. And on that note, that is sadly all the time that we have. I want to thank my guest, uh, Dr. Samantha Shabib, for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure been an absolute pleasure to be on. I felt so honored and to see you and go devils. Go devils, fork them. <laughs> In the meantime, next week or next episode, let's say, we'll be speaking with Dana Klober all about forgiveness and resiliency and how to help mend these issues once we encounter them. But until then, have a great spring break, DSU. You've been listening to Red Rock Relationships, a podcast about communication. Thank you so much for giving us some of your time. If you'd like to be on the show or have questions for us, please send us an email to redrockrelationships at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Just search Red Rock Relationships. Thank you again. And remember, it all begins with good communication. This has been a production from a podcast studio.